Hey, Scott, it's time for another score show. Really? What kind of empty, boring, lifeless, athematic, amelodic dreck are we listening to this time? This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Listeners, welcome back to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where there is always a hotter take. Now, now, now. We're not here to excoriate these movies. We're only here to excoriate these scores. Yes, we'll only excoriate the movies by implication. We are here, of course, to discuss more Star Wars scores. This time we are doing the prequel trilogy, starting with The Phantom Menace, which is a very special event in all of our lives, wasn't it? It was. It was a fascinating event to me. Really? Even looking back on it, we were so excited for The Phantom Menace. I mean, just speaking for me personally, I was so excited for The Phantom Menace. It took me a good four, five, six months to realize, wait, this movie kind of sucks. Yeah, it took a little while to sink in. Because, <laughs> you know, it was new Star Wars for the first time since I was five. Yeah, that's what took so long for me, because all of the movies had been grandfathered in. I'd been watching them basically my entire life. And the fact that the new one sucked wasn't within my universe of possibility. Yeah, how could a Star Wars movie not be great? But of course, as you say, we're not here to excoriate the movie. We are here to excoriate John Williams's score. After having listened to it twice in the last few days, I'm ready to rip it to shreds. So was Ben Burt. Before we talk about the treatment of the score, let's talk about the main elements that it's made up of first. We started this show with the new theme for Anakin Skywalker, based partially on the previous theme for Anakin Skywalker, but a lot more gentle. It's trying more to feel childlike, but I'm not sure it really gets there. Well, it definitely feels childlike. I actually kind of like Anakin's theme. It's a decent listen. The only real problem I have with Anakin's theme, which is not unique to Anakin's theme, but Anakin's theme is used nearly identically in the Anakin's theme suite. As it is in the movie, the first time they use it 
in Padme Meets Anakin. Which is nearly identical to how it's used in Anakin Pod Racer mechanic. Which is nearly identical to how it's played in Watto's Roll of the Die. Which is nearly identical to how it's played in Hail to the Winter Anakin Skywalker. Which is nearly identical to how it's played in Anakin and Group to Coruscant. Which is nearly identical to how it's played in Qui-Gon's mission. Not a lot of variation, I guess would be the point that I'm trying to make there. Oh, is that the point you're trying to make there? I thought the point you were trying to make there was, look at these track titles. Oh yes, the track titles on the Ultimate Edition are god-awful, but that's beside the point. My point is that, like, the first 14 times they used Anakin's theme in the score, it sounds nearly identical to the way it is in the concert suite. So they're just really hammering on that childlike thing. Because they never play it any different ever. There was a brass variation recorded for the end of the pod race. Apparently it wasn't used in the movie. Uh, that happened a bit. It's still part of the score, though. Well, that, that's, that brings up a philosophical question of what counts as the score. Yes, I generally favor a uh, expansive view. I mean, you come to these score reviews with the score that the movie has, not the score you want or might wish for it to have had. We come to these score discussions, well... For one thing, with the albums that we have and whatever we're able to acquire, but I think you come to a discussion of an overall score with whatever we have of what the composer wrote and recorded and intended. I don't know. If you're covering what the composer recorded and not what was in the movie, then aren't you just covering a studio album instead of a movie score? I mean, there are albums of scores, and... 
what we're talking about is, I think, more broadly, the musical sphere that encompasses the Star Wars franchise. And that includes, you know, music that might not ultimately have been used in the films. So, in your opinion, what we're covering is music from and inspired by Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Every score is from and inspired by. I mean, I don't think strictly limiting your scope to exactly what is in the film gives you a comprehensive picture of the music that was written and recorded and intended for it. Which, in the case of The Phantom Menace and the prequels more generally, these scores, as they're represented in the films, and to some extent as they're represented on their official albums, are huge jigsaw puzzles. And so, how exactly you want to put that puzzle together is a place where you can encounter philosophical differences. In the case of The Phantom Menace and the prequels more generally, and many films we could name, the treatment of the scores that are written and recorded for them is pretty harsh. You know, due to post-production schedules and re-editing and, and final effects coming in, the timing that Williams would have used when he wrote and recorded many of the cues for the climax of the film wouldn't have fit the edits as they were coming together close to the release date. Basically, George Lucas felt that digital distribution of the film meant he could continue to edit it until like 48 hours before it fucking opened. And we see now, very often, digital distribution of films does mean that a lot of blockbuster films are being edited and finalized very close to their release dates. Yeah, but if you chop and screw a Zimmer score, it's not really going to affect it at all. I mean, what are you going to do? Interrupt the flow? It has a bit more of an effect on a John Williams Star Wars score. Exactly. So if you really pay attention to the music as you can hear it in the film, they are so chopped and screwed, it basically sounds like Ben Burt and George Lucas threw the score into a blender and then poured it into the movie. Well, in addition to the fact that they were recutting it and re-editing it, I don't know if it was literally 48 hours, but it was within days of the actual like, debut. In addition to that, also at some point, I don't know which of them decided, I guess they both must have gone along with it, they both said, hey, you know all this music that John Williams wrote for the finale, what if we cut all of that out and just replaced it with sound clips from the concert suite of Duel of the Fates? Yes, exactly. Apparently, when the concert suite of Duel of the Fates was recorded and delivered, George Lucas and Ben Burtt fell in love with it so much that, indeed, a lot of the music that was written for the duel at the end of the film was just tossed. And so that concert suite was tossed in the blender, and whatever phrases from it could fit a particular shot went in that shot. It's sort of an interesting phenomenon. Well, there's two interesting phenomena. One, they released an album they call the Ultimate Edition, which is exactly the music that was in the film. Mostly. There's a couple of little things, but for the most part, it's exactly the music that was in the film with every terrible edit and every repetitive bit 
and especially the battle music at the end has no flow to it whatsoever because it's all just chopped up bits placed scene by scene it has no flow it has no build up and payoff because one minute of music has nothing to do with the next minute of music at one point a flourish repeats itself like literally from 3 seconds earlier yes So, listening to that album is an experience. The other interesting phenomenon is you made the point that Star Wars was temp-tracked with a bunch of classical music and a bunch of old 40s and 50s movie scores, and then Empire and Jedi were temp-tracked with Star Wars. Phantom Menace was temp-tracked with Phantom Menace. (laughs) I suppose so. I mean, if you compare the soundtrack album that was released at the time that the film opened with the Ultimate Edition that was released a little later, you have the score as Williams chose to present it, with some cues moved around from a chronological order and some cues combined to form, you know, an album that flowed the way that Williams wanted it to flow, and the version that the editors prepared to go into the actual film, which is nearly unlistenable, I think. Well, that original album is sort of a trip, too. In some ways. Like, isn't the exciting, tension-building Escape from Naboo track entitled Qui-Gon's Noble End on that CD? Yes, it is. (laughs) So, I mean, that album has its own issues. And there is a bit that is repeated. Actually, there are several bits that are repeated because there are the concert suites for Anakin's theme and Duel of the Fates, and the end credits, which are not variations. They're basically the concert suites, again. (laughs) But there's also a cue from the middle of the film that's just on the album twice, because Williams thought it was a good idea. And, and really, in terms of how to present his music, who are we to argue? But I have a podcast and I have opinions. It's weird because the first Star Wars albums I ever owned were the special edition soundtracks. Right. Which aren't perfect and aren't 100% complete, but they are such good compilations of the music for those films. Right. Yes. And to compare those to any of these various Phantom Menace releases. Not to mention, of course, that among aficionados of Williams and of Star Wars, a lot of people spent a few years after Phantom Menace came out extracting bits of music that had been unreleased on the original album, uh, some things that hadn't been used in the film, picking bits and pieces that were used in various video games. The Phantom Menace PC game had some cues. Jedi Power Battles, I think, had another couple of cues. There was this frenzy. I was a teenager at the time, so of course I had all the time in the world to read message board threads on these topics. 
And there were endless guides on which files on which games could be converted in which ways to give you the cue for Anakin blowing up the ship at the end of the film. Which, by the way, is probably my favorite cue from that film. It's one of the better ones. Now that we've discussed how the score wound up in the state that it wound up in, can I tell you my primary issue with this score? Please. We discussed in our previous episode that each of the original trilogy movies was heavily built and centered on one or two themes. The original Star Wars A New Hope, that score was basically built around the Rebel fanfare. The Empire Strikes Back, that score is propped up primarily by the Imperial March and the Han and Leia love theme. And Return of the Jedi, again, is sort of carried throughout the film by the Rebel fanfare more than anything else. The Phantom Menace score is built on nothing. You can say that the duel at the end is built on Duel of the Fates, and I guess that's true, but this score in its totality is built on nothing. Anakin's theme appears the most in the movie, but nothing is built around Anakin's theme. No entire tracks are built around Anakin's theme, let alone the entire score. Anakin's theme just appears in some tracks. William's style had changed a lot since 1983. Oh, absolutely. And don't get me wrong, Williams could still write a great theme. I like Anakin's theme. Duel of the Fates is good. The music he does for the Naboo palace guards during the battle at the end. I like that material a lot. This movie came out in 99. In 2000, he did The Patriot, which we talked about on a previous episode. In 2001, he did the first Harry Potter movie, which has a bunch of themes in it. Williams could still write a great theme, but he was no longer building his scores around themes. He was no longer centering his scores on themes. He was just using themes here and there. And you can see that at the very beginning of this score, because the first theme in this score is the Emperor's theme from Return of the Jedi. And that's just used for one brief section where the Emperor appears. It's not like there's a track built around it, it's not the focus of anything, it's just there because the Emperor's there. The second theme to appear in this score is Luke's theme. Which is there, I guess, because an action scene is happening? The third theme to appear in this score is Ben's theme. But it's not used for Ben, it's used for Qui-Gon. But they don't use Qui-Gon's theme. And all of these themes appear, like, I think the Emperor's theme is used the longest. The others appear for, like, two seconds. The first track that's, like, built around a theme might be the Flag Parade? I guess maybe you can make an argument for the droid invasion? The Flag Parade is an interesting case because it's one of those set-piece cues that we've talked about for all of the previous films, where there's this singular idea that Williams explores for a couple of minutes and then discards.
and it's one of the highlights of the entire score. And I think it shows, among some other elements of this score, that I think Williams is really, really trying here to write something that is true to the sort of environment that he created in the previous Star Wars scores. Even while his personal style has changed, and I think the way that he created and used themes changed over that time. So you have kind of a clash there, where he's trying to do something that is of a piece with things that he wrote in a different phase of his career. So you wind up with some odd choices at times. You wind up with some themes that are introduced and then not used particularly much going forward, such as Qui-Gon's theme you mentioned a minute ago. Qui-Gon is one of the through lines of the film, and yet his theme doesn't show up until halfway through. Qui-Gon's theme is used three times. Right. And its most prominent use, it sounds like the tune to a Backstreet Boys song. Well... Qui-Gon's theme is used three times, when he sets Anakin free, when he fights Darth Maul on Tatooine, and when he dies. Qui-Gon's in a lot more scenes than that. And again, Qui-Gon's theme is used, as in it appears, not this track is built around Qui-Gon's theme. Not the way that the escape from Cloud City is built around the love theme. Not the way that the sail barge assault is built around the rebel fanfare. Not the way that the chasm crossfire is built around Luke's theme. That doesn't happen in this movie. Ever. Like I said, the flag parade. And like, half of the droid invasion. There's a stark difference between themes appearing and themes being the center of something. Between using a theme and building your tracks and your score around themes. That's just something Williams wasn't doing as much in this era of his career. You wind up with less interaction between themes, too. I mean, there are lots of times when you have themes alternating, but not really interacting in the way that you had previously where some things would be in counterpoint or would share some instrumentation to, to, to kind of not only vary the themes, but to say something in terms of storytelling with them. The only time that happens in The Phantom Menace 
is when Anakin is destroying the ship at the end of the film, and the duel of the fates becomes sort of a driving ostinato under a longer form version of the force theme, which is what really makes that cue work because it's not just a straightforward iteration of Duel of the Fates. It's using it as an element that's interacting with other things. That's the thing. When you only use themes in isolation and don't use them as the backbone of a track or a score, they don't really get to interact either with each other or just with other music. You know, Anakin's on screen, you play Anakin's theme, and then you go back to anonymous atmospheric emptiness. The Emperor shows up, play the Emperor's theme, and then go back to anonymous atmospheric emptiness. I mean, that's one of the things that made the original trilogy scores so good, is that all of the themes weren't just, like, recognizable tunes appearing in isolation in response to on-screen cues. They were the very backbone of that score, and so they had to interact with each other. I commented on the Sail Barge Assault, that in that one track, they use, like, every single accentuating piece that they've ever used to accentuate the Rebel fanfare. Everything from, like, different types of Rolling Thunder, to the TIE Fighter attack, to Luke's theme. Nothing accentuates anything else in this Phantom Menace score. Everything appears in isolation. Everything is just a response to something that happens on screen. What is the backbone of this score? If you isolate maybe the last handful of tracks and say, you know, a lot of these are based around Duel of the Fates, I would even argue that. There are some scenes whose score is based around Duel of the Fates, because there are some scenes that are scored with copy and pasted excerpts of the Duel of the Fates concert suite. But if you look at this score, this, this entire score, the, the Ultimate Edition is over two hours. What's the backbone of this score? It's really hard to identify a unifying through-line. And that's one thing about the structure of this score that I think is really fundamentally different from the others. And I think really affects the ability of the score to aid the storytelling. Which, for God's sake, this movie needed. <laughs> this storytelling needed all the help it could get. Again, I think Williams is trying here. There's only so much he can do with the movie he was given, but I think he's really trying. I think the style that Williams 
was doing in the late 90s is not a style that applied well to a Star Wars movie. And this score is a good example of that. I mean, I've said before, I like Anakin's theme. I like that concert suite. I like the tune of the theme. It doesn't get a variety of use and development the way that Luke's theme does, the Force theme does, the Love theme does, the Rebel Fanfare does, the Imperial March does. Even the Emperor's theme in Return of the Jedi does, compared to the rote repetition of the Emperor's theme in The Phantom Menace. I mean, I could go through listing every track the Emperor's theme is in and how they're all identical the way I did with Anakin's theme. No, we don't need to do that again, I think. I have notes. I know. I mean, Duel of the Fates, that's a great concert suite. And the couple of times in this score where you get, like, orchestral variation on Duel of the Fates, the couple of pieces that survived, where he uses the tune of Duel of the Fates and incorporates it into other tracks, including the one you mentioned when Anakin blows up the spaceship, those few examples are really cool. I like them a lot. But they're staggeringly rare in this score. strikes me about Duel of the Fates as a piece and as a theme is that it's composed of a bunch of smaller pieces that are repeated and used in some softer and some stronger ways, but it strikes me as a very cellular piece, if you take my meaning there, where there's the ostinato and there's the melodic line over top of that, which is longer, but not much compared to some of the long-lined themes that Williams has written before for this franchise. And so that might have worked against Williams in terms of the treatment of the score in the film, because it allowed it to be edited so much. Because a lot of it is repeated elements and sort of separate elements that are layered over each other. Including the chorus, which is so much stronger and more heavily featured here than the chorus has ever been in Star Wars to this point. Well, the only other time they used a chorus in Star Wars was in Return of the Jedi. Primarily for the Emperor's theme, but also in the final battle between Luke and Vader. But that was a really deep, deep bass chorus that sort of served the dual purpose of being menacing, but also sounding, like, disconcerting and sinister. This is just a chorus. 
one of the things that I wanted to look at coming into this review is, you know, after the long layoff, after he's in such a different area of his career, does this score sound like a Star Wars score? And really all I've been doing this entire episode is pointing out ways in which it doesn't. But those are all based on, like, the structure of the score. Right. But just from the sound of it, does it sound like a Star Wars score? Does it feel like a Star Wars score? Just from the instrumentation, just from what types of musical elements appear? And that's sort of a mixed bag. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And I think the chorus of Duel of the Fates is one of the places where I gotta say no. Yeah, I think so too. As we'll see as we move through these prequel scores, the addition over time, I think, kind of changes what that sound is, and the prequels develop a sound of their own. But in terms of at this time, in 1999, in isolation, there are some elements that kind of knock it out of that category a little bit. The chorus, I agree, is one of them. Also, something I forgot to mention a minute ago, but is also part of that, like, Star Wars feel, even accepting the use of the chorus in Return of the Jedi, this is the first time a chorus has ever had lyrics in a Star Wars movie. Yes. Like, previously, the only time there were lyrics in a Star Wars movie were Yub Nub and Loptinek. And those were both source music, to one degree or another. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's wrong of me to say, well, it doesn't feel like Star Wars. Because, I mean, the feel of Star Wars can change over time, as you said. But it's a sharp departure from the feel of the original trilogy, which is all the Star Wars we had to compare it to at the time. Right. One other thing I think is a departure is the change in Williams's action style. Some of his action tracks are becoming a lot more xylophone forward at this point in time. And so you have scenes like the escape from Naboo in the first act of the film, which is built almost entirely around a xylophone ostinato, if you could call it that. It's another of the highlights of the score. I'm not criticizing this, just noting. Into the Trap wasn't xylophone-focused? Not particularly. <laughs> oh my god, I'm trying to imagine this now. <laughs> you know, people do concept solo albums, you know, Star Wars for piano, or, you know, the highlights of John Williams for violin. 
I'm trying to imagine a virtuoso xylophone player who plays for, you know, prestigious orchestras deciding, I'm going to put out an album of Star Wars music on the xylophone. And the feature track off that is The Escape from Naboo. Which, by the way, if you go back and look at the film, that scene is absolutely nothing without that music. That music is the entirety of the pacing, the entirety of any excitement, because in terms of the visuals and dialogue, there's just nothing there. Well, you basically just identified the problem with the movie, right? Sure, we've gone back to excoriating the movie. Well, not only the movie, because that scene is completely carried by the energy of the music, so few other scenes are carried by the energy of the music, because so few musical pieces on this score have any fucking energy in them. Seriously, there's an entire sequence from the escape from Naboo, and I guess if you want to count the, like, flourish where they land on Tatooine, which they continue for like a minute and a half because they have nothing better to play. But basically from that landing on Tatooine flourish, straight through until they're in the battle on Naboo with the droids. That entire stretch is a long, hard slog. And the pretty much the only oasis in the middle is the flag parade. But the Tatooine music, which includes, like, three different source tracks. The Pod Race, which was scored with the Escape from Naboo track. Yeah, because we... it wasn't only the battle at the end that got chopped and screwed all over the place. Yeah, you better get used to that Escape from Naboo. It's in all of the prequels. And then all of the stuff on Coruscant with the Jedi Council, and then the Senate, and then meeting with people, and then flying back to Naboo. That entire sequence, with the minor exception of the flag parade, is just... There's nothing there. I think I fell asleep twice. And that's the sort of thing that would have been interesting in other Star Wars scores. Those are the sorts of scenes that get stuff like Alliance Assembly from Return of the Jedi. All of the stuff in Cloud City is basically that same kind of scene where they're in their suite on Cloud City and Lando is showing them around Cloud City, those are the tracks where we get that awesome Cloud City theme. Heck, they're in the Jedi Council talking about Anakin and whether they're going to train him. Yoda's there. Yoda has a theme. Qui-Gon is there. Qui-Gon has a theme. Ben's there. Ben has a theme. Anakin's there. Anakin's got like three themes at this point. They're in the Jedi Council. The Force has a theme. None of those themes are used! <laughs> There's something to Williams's judicious use of original trilogy themes, to put it kindly. I think, particularly with the Force theme in this film, and Luke's theme the couple of times that it appears, I think in the context of this film, coming back after so long, Williams understands the totemic nature of a lot of the themes that he wrote for the original trilogy, and so he uses Luke's theme and the Force theme early in the film as one of the ways that he's signaling that this is the world that we're in and, and you know, it's the same universe. But for the rest of the film, I feel like Williams uses the Force theme as a signal that something important is happening. 
The thing is, I don't even want him to have used more original trilogy themes. I mean, he could have. But I mean, Anakin has a new theme. Qui-Gon has a new theme. Obi-Wan Kenobi has a theme. If you don't want to use that theme because it's been associated with other stuff, give Obi-Wan a new theme, like he did to Luke in The Last Jedi. You know, give Amidala a theme. There are scenes in this movie that are just crying out for an Amidala theme to center the theme around, but I'm not sure that would have made any difference anyway, because even scenes with people that have themes are crying out for a theme to center the, the cue around. But, I mean, if you give Anakin a theme, and you give Qui-Gon a theme, and you give Obi-Wan a theme, and the Force has its own theme, and you hint at the Imperial theme when you're talking about Anakin's dark future, and you give Amidala a theme, and you give the Gungans a theme, and the, dro the droid army has a theme, and there's a particular musical style and motif associated with the palace guards, you could build a score. That's, that's more themes than New Hope had. <laughs> You can build a score around that, but what you have to do is do it in a completely different style, where instead of doing two hours of generic background emptiness with a couple of little spots where you drop themes, you have to build your tracks around themes. And that's just not something Williams does in this score. It's one of the fundamental things that really sets it apart. Yeah and which results in something that really just leaves me cold. Despite some good pieces that we've talked about, and despite some of the feel of the orchestra that I think is also trying to put it in that same world, aside from that one escape sequence that is very xylophone-forward, a lot of the action scenes are very, very brass-forward. And so are a lot of the fanfares for ships, you know, leaving planets, landing on planets. And if you're going to write a Star Wars score, you have to be able to provide killer fanfares for leaving and landing on planets, because you're going to have to do it a lot. And a lot of the ones in Phantom Menace are good, and a lot of the action scenes, when Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are fighting the droids to, you know, rescue the princess before they escape the planet, and the fight in the fighter bay at the beginning of the climactic battle when the Naboo pilots are, are you know, going to, to their ships. Those are very, very brass forward, trying to be in that style. But because of a lot of these fundamental structural aspects, it just feels off and it just leaves me cold. When I was putting together the podcast for the original trilogy... One of the sort of self-imposed limitations I've always used when putting together these shows is that I can't just, like, paste in an entire track of music. Because A, that just sort of feels like piracy. And B, that's going to get real boring for the audience. Because I've listened to podcasts where you start the show and there's like a three-minute music track before the people actually start talking and it just makes me want to fast-forward or turn it the fuck off. And so I've always limited myself to one minute of music. If we're m talking about a piece of music and making a point about it, one minute to illustrate our point. If we're using a piece of music to intro the podcast or intro a section of the podcast where we're talking about that piece of music, one minute of music to give an example so that the audience knows what we're talking about. That was very hard for me to do when I was doing the original trilogy show. Because there were so many tracks, it's like, 
how do I take this and limit it to one minute? Yeah. Where do I cut it off at the beginning? Where do I cut it off at the end? How do I limit myself to only one minute of Into the Trap? How do I limit myself to only one minute of the Sail Barge Assault? How do I limit myself to only one minute of Yup Nub? Jedi is the one I did most recently, so it's freshest in my mind, but those were some really hard edits I was making to stick to my self-imposed limit of one minute of music, because that's where I feel like is a good balance between not just outright pirating the album and not completely boring the audience to tears with music they don't want to listen to. And yet, enough to illustrate the point that we're trying to make. Because it's very hard to explain music in words. It's easier to just paste a clip. But limiting myself to one minute to some of those original trilogy f tracks was very, very difficult to do. I don't think I'm going to have that problem with Phantom Menace. Like, really, other than the concert suites, when is there any piece of music that continues uninterrupted for an entire minute on this CD? I believe the flag parade is literally about a minute long. <laughs> the version in the film, there's a concert version of it too, which I don't think is as good, it's a little more unfocused. But, exactly, how are you going to limit yourself to only one minute of Anakin's theme? How am I going to limit myself to only one minute of a thematic background music with 20 seconds of Anakin's theme plopped in the middle? How am I going to limit myself to only one minute of a thematic background music with 15 seconds of Qui-Gon's theme plopped in the first half? Like, I don't think it's going to be a problem editing this show. The only theme that really gets any significant variation... And I still don't know if this is intentional. Maybe you probably know more about this than I do. Somehow, right after Qui-Gon dies and they have Qui-Gon's funeral, immediately after that is a giant party with a Gungan band and a parade and the festive party music being played by the Gungan band in the parade is the Emperor's theme. That's one bit of this score that I think is just genius. It's such an unexpected and drastic variation, pretty much just because it's in major mode, that at the same time, I think is the only place in this score where Williams really is thinking about the storytelling. Because, in terms of the overall plot arc of the prequels, this entire movie was basically set up by Palpatine to become Chancellor. And so the victory parade for the Gungans and everyone on Naboo for having liberated themselves is playing into his plan. That would be the single most subtle and most significant theme usage in this entire score and the single most subtle piece of storytelling in this entire movie. Yes, exactly. 
I like the Augie's Municipal Band track. It feels to me like a cross between the original Yub Nub and the Special Edition Victory Celebration. It's got some of that feel of the original Ewok song, but it also feels kind of like the more modern Victory Celebration because it is, you know, this era of Williams. Exactly. Like, if there's a spectrum from Ewok Celebration to Victory Celebration, this would sort of fall in the middle. It's a transitional form, yes. It's also the single longest use of any theme. Well... Other than the credits. (laughs) Oh, we should talk about the credits. Do you want to talk about the credits? Well, I learned this from you, and looking at it now, it's obvious that... They only ever recorded one version of the credits for the prequels and just pasted on music from each movie. The main title as well. They only recorded it for The Phantom Menace and then tracked it into the others with increasingly bad edits coming out of it. Well, the way they did it on the end credits stands out to me because they get to a point in Luke's theme and then they just like drop all the foreground instruments and just play, like, the background part of Luke's theme for about a measure or two, and then fade that out so that they can just cut anything on top of it for whatever they wind up doing in the later movies. And it just sounds so bad. Like, the foreground brass instruments drop out of Luke's theme, you're just getting, like, the background stuff, and then that fades out, and they just paste the beginning of Duel the Fates over top of it. Yeah, there's a cookie-cutter aspect to it that's a little off-putting. I mean, we've made musical suites with better edits than that. We've certainly made suites with better edits than the entire climax of the film as well. That'll do it, I think, for our discussion of The Phantom Menace. Come back after this when we move on to the next prequel score. Are you ready, Scott, for The Attack of the Clones? I'm feeling very attacked. I'm also feeling very menaced. And these scores are pretty sithy. We'll be back after this.
emotional consideration paid for by the following. Place to be nations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have over two dozen podcasts available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceToBeNation.com. We now offer them to you on two great feeds. The PlaceToBeNation Wrestling feed, we dive into topics running the gamut from today's WWE to the glory days of yesteryear and the ins and outs of the territory days. In addition to our full-length shows, we also deliver to you special pod blasts on topics old and new. The Place to Be Nation pop feed is a veritable treasure trove of great content. Offer tremendous shows covering the land of movies, television, life, comics, and sports. Brought to you by the most knowledgeable and insightful folks in the podcast world. You can find all these current shows, plus archives of our previous podcasts from over the past eight years as well, by subscribing to our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows, plus others available at PlaceMation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using www.placetobination.com forward slash Amazon while doing your online shopping. And be sure to join us at our forum at Bigelow34.proboards.com for all sorts of wrestling, sports, and pop culture discussion each and every day where you can make your voice heard. We also want to thank our friends at Boneheads Wing Bar, ProWrestlingOnly.com, and TheHistoryOfWrestling.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceTobation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. We must now turn our eyes to 2002's Attack of the Clones. Scott, is there anything here? A surprising amount, actually. Really? This is a shockingly better score than The Phantom Menace. (laughs) Amazing. Let's begin with the biggest addition to the musical canon from this movie, the love theme for that epic, epic love story between Anakin and Padme. Doesn't it just touch your heart? I mean, who couldn't love Anakin in this movie? As with so many things in these movies, for the love theme, I think Williams is really trying to score a better movie than he's been given to score. He's trying to assist the storytelling as if there is decent storytelling going on. Sometimes he tries to create it whole cloth. Well, there's a certain extent to which I think Williams sort of knew the score after Phantom Menace came out. And so that's why you see things like he didn't even bother to write music for the entire battle at the end. Because he saw what happened to music that he wrote and recorded for battles at the end of these things. And so he just said, fine, do what you will. I get the impression that Williams has a very laissez-faire attitude towards his scores after he's done creating them. He gives them to the filmmakers, and then his job is done, he detaches, he's out. 
So whatever they do to them in terms of throwing them in the blender and pouring them over the movie, he's not involved, he's not doing it, he's not the editor, he's not the producer, that's not his job. And that's an attitude he forced himself to develop after The Phantom Menace. <laughs> Much like my attitude that it's okay if a franchise entry sucks is an attitude that I forced myself to develop after The Phantom Menace and Star Trek Voyager. You can't make this some sort of, like, battle or contest or whatever between Williams and Lucas and the people editing the movie. Because it's not like the soundtrack album that John Williams produced is any less chopped and screwed and remixed than the score in the actual movie is. It's just chopped and screwed differently. And chopped and screwed by Williams himself. Well, case in point, track one on the commercial CD is Star Wars main title and the arrival at Camino. Conveniently titled Arrival at Coruscant on the CD, if I believe. Yes, well, of course, after he's done making the score, he hands it off to the producers and the editors, his job there is done, and then his job is creating the album. And so, you know, whatever he feels he needs to do in terms of resequencing things and editing things to get an album with the flow and the general shape that he wants, that's his domain, as opposed to whatever they have to do to edit it in the, into the movie. And there's a different sort of artistry that goes into that sort of thing. And I, I, I tend to feel that the way these things are re-edited and resequenced for a lot of the commercial albums sometimes is not ideal, and sometimes is a little confusing. It's not hard to make these things. You take the music from the movie and you put it on a CD. You'd think it would be a relatively simple process. That's the kind of thinking that gets you the Phantom Menace Ultimate Edition. <laughs> you know what? I'm not even mad at the Phantom Menace the Ultimate Edition, because it's not like the Phantom Menace score is something that I've been, like, cursing the fact that I missed out on for the last 20 years. It's not like the Phantom Menace score was great before George Lucas and Ben Burt got their hands on it. That's not the case. But we just talked about The Phantom Menace for an hour, so let's move on. We're so excited to talk about The Attack of the Clones that we're still talking about The Phantom Menace. So, for the love theme for Attack of the Clones, I really feel like Williams is trying to convey the pathos of a doomed, tragic, passionate love affair, despite the fact that none of that is in evidence in the film. But he is he is trying to get there. He's trying to shoulder that amount of the storytelling. And the love theme that he produces is so good that it almost gets there, actually.
You're describing it as if the, this love theme was, like, crafted and molded to fit a specific purpose. At the same time, this love theme is basically Luke's theme flipped upside down. can see that, I suppose. I mean, it's amazing. And it's amazing that he could take his own theme, simply flip it upside down, and come out with another great theme. Yeah. But you don't have to look far to find the inspiration. Well, that just makes it fit more smoothly in the overall universe of this series, doesn't it? Well, it is the first great theme to come out of the prequels. Possibly the only great theme to come out of the prequels. I mean, I'll have to listen to Sith and see if something comes up. Yeah, we'll see. But if you're going to list, like, the 20 or 30 best Star Wars themes, Across the Stars is the only one that's coming out of these prequels. There's no way I could come up with a list of 20 off the top of my head, but you're probably right. <laughs> and the amazing thing is, in contrast to all of the themes he wrote for The Phantom Menace, the love theme is actually you! in the film. That's one thing that I wanted to talk about a little. Uh, we talked about how The Phantom Menace doesn't really have much of a thematic backbone. And this score, because there's just the one major theme that's introduced, I feel really does have that sort of unifying identity. It does, but I think an argument could be made that that identity is not the love theme. Because there's a motif that he uses for, like, the whole separatist dark side conspiracy. That is used more often than the love theme, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's used more, because it doesn't get any development with one singular exception. Every time you hear it, it's the same damn motif, and it never gets any variation, except for one track where all of a sudden it becomes a march. And it's like a cruel tease, because after that, for the rest of the score, it just goes back to being the same damn thing over and over again. But for that one brief shining moment, they actually did something interesting with it. 
Whereas the love theme is just all over this score. Not in the way that original trilogy themes were all over their scores, but the love theme is used often, and different pieces of it are used, and it's used in different ways. Like, it's not just the initial first half of the theme most recognizable rendition, like the way they use Anakin's theme in Phantom Menace. It's not always played identically, like the way they do Anakin's theme in The Phantom Menace. It doesn't show up only a few times, like they do with Qui-Gon's theme in The Phantom Menace. It's there often, it's there in different ways, different pieces of it are used. I would prefer it to be used more thoroughly, but I mean, it's the best we've had since the original trilogy. And there is, in fact, one track, one singular track in this score that is, in fact, centered and built around the theme in the way that I was lamenting the absence of in The Phantom Menace. In a lot of these tracks, the love theme is just sort of dropped in there as an accent, but there is one track on this CD that is actually built around the love theme. That was amazing to hear. It might be the best single track in the entire prequel trilogy. That is a really fantastic version, and the sort of sweeping version of it that comes in as they're wheeled into the arena, I think, again, is Williams scoring something that's a lot better than this actual movie. It, it's trying to create an epic moment. You're really slagging on this movie hard just because the writing sucks and the acting sucks. I suppose. <laughs> But I mean, other than those two aspects. The writing sucks, and the acting sucks, and the editing is frantic, and the effects don't stand up, and, you know, but those aren't the parts of the movies that we're doing podcasts about. My point is just that we remarked a lot during the original trilogy show about moments where the music was really contributing to the storytelling. And there are times when Williams is still trying to do that. It's just that he's getting nothing back. He's trying to contribute to the storytelling, except the storytelling just doesn't hold up. Basically. But still, it's an improvement over The Phantom Menace when the score did nothing to contribute to the storytelling. There were some moments where it might have in a better movie. I really cannot overstate how much better the clone score is than Phantom Menace. Even the parts that aren't focused on themes, and, I mean, by the way, there are parts that are focused on themes, but even the parts that aren't focused on themes are just better. Like, I think the Zam the Assassin material could easily fall under your category of one-track themes that Williams does.
it's really distinctive as far as an action set piece goes. Very, very tightly dedicated to the rhythmic elements that it's using, above all else. Yeah, it's much more rhythmic-focused than, like, grand epic theme-focused. But it is unique, and it is a focus of that track. It's not just 12 minutes of anonymous, generic noodling around like two-thirds of the Phantom Menace score was. There is a fair bit of noodling around in this score, but maybe a little less. When you look at the way the Phantom Menace treated the new themes for that score, it was astonishingly badly. Anakin's theme was repeated several times, but never really developed or used in different ways, and it didn't really receive focus anywhere ever. Qui-Gon's theme might have had the most variation of any of the new Phantom Menace themes, in that it was used in three different ways in the three times it appeared. Duel of the Fates, I still have no idea what that theme represents other than it sounds cool. Yeah, that's a real question, I think. Brought up again by its reappearance in this score. We'll get to that, but if you look at the way that this score treats its themes, the love theme is used in many ways and many variations all over the place. There's even sort of this thing that in my mind I sort of thought of as like a secondary love theme because they use it in the meadow scene and then they use it again in the dinner scene, or at least in the track for the dinner scene. I don't remember if it's in the dinner part or the fireside part, but whatever. But they use this same little melody in those two scenes. And so that's sort of, I mean, I guess also music for their love that they use multiple times. Yeah, it's a much lighter melody to kind of portray the lighter element of it as they're falling in love, rather than more of the pathos of it. I don't know, the way they use the love theme at the end of that meadow scene, I think, is pretty light. That is probably the brightest version of it, yeah. There's also that conspiracy motif, which is all over the place in all the conspiracy scenes, and also when Obi-Wan is investigating the conspiracy, and when Obi-Wan is reporting back about the conspiracy, and even just when conspirators are on screen and they're, not, they're saying things that are tangentially related to the conspiracy, the conspiracy motif is used when Palpatine talks about the assassination attempt against Amidala at the beginning. The conspiracy motif is used when Palpatine gets emergency powers. I mean, that theme isn't developed or used in multiple ways, but it is all over the place and you know exactly what it's referring to. 
There's also a Camino theme, a theme for the planet Camino that's used in like three or four or five different scenes. And so I guess what I'm trying to get at is the themes in this movie, it's not so much that they're treated better, although I would argue they are, but they're treated as more important than they were treated in The Phantom Menace. They're treated as a more important part of the score and a more important part of the movie than any of the themes in Phantom Menace were. With the possible exception of Duel of the Fates, because, I mean, I guess you can't say they didn't treat that as if it was important, but... Duel of the Fates is still kind of a confused mess to me, especially with all the little snippets of it cut into various Phantom Menace scenes. It's even more of a confused mess. I think that Camino material is really valuable in terms of how this score functions, because the film keeps cutting back and forth between Obi-Wan's story and An Anakin and Padme's story, and the Camino material gives the Obi-Wan scenes more of an identity. So that has, you know, an identifiable element that carries through that plotline while you have the love theme carrying the other plotline. So it's not just, here's a scene with the love theme, and then here's a scene with Anonymous noodling around. But let's talk about Duel of the Fates a little, because it was never really clear to me from the Phantom Menace score what exactly that theme represents. I think my note when we were doing Phantom Menace was exactly which fates are dueling. Exactly. When you hear the title, Duel of the Fates, and you hear the piece, the concert suite, which has these big totemic chords and this big overpowering choir, it calls to mind questions of destiny and fate and the light and the dark side and the decisions that the character of Anakin is going to have to make through this prequel trilogy. Again, this is telling a better story than the movies are. <laughs> Yeah, the movies are just using that theme as a backdrop for overly choreographed acrobatics between Ewan McGregor and Liam Neeson and Ray Park. Right. I think using it in Attack of the Clones for Anakin setting off to rescue his mother slash massacre the Sand People, as distinct from the Binary Sunset redo that immediately precedes it, you could say that those two themes abutting each other is the duel of the fates, the two fates, the two sides that he has to choose between. And if you want to go that far into it, the force theme is cut off rather sharply by the introduction of the duel of the fates theme.
Again, he's trying to tell that story, but I don't think it really comes together in the way that it could have. Let me say this about that. Duel of the Fates is a giant, grand theme. It's huge, it's bold, it's got a chorus, it's fast-paced. If that theme is supposed to be for Anakin's internal conflict, pulling him toward the dark or toward the light, and which way will he go, that theme is singularly unsuited for that usage. What is a much better suit to that usage is the very low bass choir that isn't singing any lyrics but is just a presence that is used in the scene where he brings his mother's body back to the farmstead. And is used a little bit in the next scene when he tells Padme about what he did to the Sand People. Very reminiscent of the choir used in Return of the Jedi for Luke's temptation to the dark side. That works very well for that sort of thing. Duel of the Fates, with its giant, grand, fast-paced, action-y theme, is not suited for that sort of storytelling. And of course, in the film, the scene where he confesses to Padme has the Emperor's theme pasted over it, so... Does it really? Yeah, it's the performance of the Emperor's theme from the end of the movie when Dooku goes to meet Sidious. Hmm. Or part of it, rather. Looped a couple of times. That sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of pasted in there before the suggestions and then full statements of Darth Vader's theme at the end of that scene. There's an interesting conflict, not just in this movie, but in this movie in particular. Because in its original use, on the original album, that track is called The Imperial March, parentheses, Darth Vader's Theme. And at the time, Darth Vader was like the number two guy in the entire Empire, so it made sense that Darth Vader's theme would be used for the Empire. But in this movie, those uses sort of come into conflict. Because in that moment, when he's telling Padme about his dark deeds, it is Darth Vader's theme. That theme is being used to intimate this dude is on the road to becoming Darth freaking Vader. Right. At the end of the movie, when it's used over a shot of the Stormtroopers, that's not Darth Vader's theme. Anakin is, like, many thousands of parsecs away getting married. That theme is the Imperial March in that scene. But it's not the Imperial March in the Anakin scene, because Anakin isn't saying, I'm gonna launch a coup and create a totalitarian dictatorship with Chancellor Palpatine. That's not anywhere in that scene. That is Darth Vader's theme in that scene. What exactly it's representing changes depending on the context. Yes. 
And the orchestration reflects that as well. Because when the music is foreshadowing or reflecting Anakin's fall, it's much more sparse, it's a little more low-key. But at the end of the film, for the clone army marching off to war, it is the fully orchestrated, most powerful version of that theme. Because it's representing something different. March at the end of the film actually was an insert that was recorded after the rest of the original cue because Williams was asked to replace what he originally wrote for it with that version of the Imperial March. Was what he originally wrote for it as bad as what he originally wrote for the Binary Sunset and what he originally wrote for the Sail Barge Assault? I leave that as an exercise for the listener. Perhaps you might think so. We sort of mentioned this earlier as like a passing thing in another point. Looking between the love theme and the conspiracy motif, can you pick one of those over the other as to which theme carried this movie? I would find it hard to say that that conspiracy motif is really carrying the movie just because of how melodically uninteresting it is in contrast with the love theme, which is far more compelling and open to more variation. Yeah, I can't really argue with that. Like I said, I think that conspiracy motif is used more, but the love theme definitely gets better development. It gets more focus. It's the theme suite on the album. It's not like they have a conspiracy motif suite. How would you even construct... I was thinking that that's the sort of thing I would be very interested to hear once. After he finishes episode 9, Williams' schedule might be open. You think he's taking commissions? <laughs> what, he's not going to score the new Ryan Johnson trilogy? Uh, likely not. I think this is going to be his closing statement. Although you never know, he might decide to just toss a new theme off like he did for Solo. One thing this score doesn't do 
is really feature any Phantom Menace themes. You mentioned the Duel of Fates use once for like five seconds when he's going out to go after his mother and the Sand People. The only other time Duel of Fates shows up in this movie is in Phantom Menace action music that's tracked into the Geonosis battle. Oh, jeez. Yes. The only time any of that Naboo fighting music shows up is when it's tracked into the Geonosis battle. Anakin's theme only shows up once in the very first scene with Anakin, and its usage is identical to the litany of identical uses that I ran down during the Phantom Menace section. So none of the Phantom Menace themes really carry over into this movie. You know, that's one of the things that makes the original trilogy feel like one greater whole. As you have Luke's theme throughout the movies, you have Leia's theme throughout the three movies, you've got Ben's theme and the Force theme throughout the three movies, even as each movie has its own new themes and has its own unique themes for things that are unique to that movie, you have these large grand themes that carry over that unite all three of them. You don't really get that in the prequels because there isn't a Phantom Menace theme that really gets carried over into this movie. Yeah, you don't have that feeling that as the trilogy proceeds, you're telescoping out into a larger world that still retains its own identity. That's true. I think the way that Williams is using themes in these movies is a lot more isolated and a lot more singular. And that really affects the structure of these things. There's also the Trade Federation march. Oh yeah, you're right, I forgot about that one. That shows up once, and then is tracked in later on. Although, the ironic thing about that is where Williams puts it in the movie is sort of weird, and you sort of have to make some leaps of interpretation to try to figure out what the hell it means there. Where it gets tracked lazily in later, it actually fits perfectly and makes perfect sense and belongs there completely. Because where it gets lazily tracked in by whoever was doing the editing at that point is when the battle droids march into the arena and start fighting in the battle. And where Williams puts it in the score is for the revelation of the clone troopers. I wonder, though... How much thought and how much subtlety and what sort of intentions go into choices like that? And the Duel of the Fates cue that we were talking about a few minutes ago. I wonder, by using the Trade Federation droid march for that scene with the clone army, is Williams making a statement about how both sides in this war that's starting are using these armies of mass-produced, disposable beings? Or did someone think that theme sounded cool and asked him to use it again? I genuinely don't know how much intention goes into these things. If we were still talking about the original trilogy, my answer would be a hell of a lot more than my answer is for this prequel trilogy. I still want to assume the best of Williams himself, and his sort of thinking about what he's doing, you know? Or maybe that's just something that I'm laying on top of it that isn't there at all. My impression of Williams scoring these last two prequel movies after seeing what happened to his score in The Phantom Menace is basically him taking a swig of whiskey straight from the bottle and screaming YOLO and just recording whatever the hell he wants. 
we had a fun discussion on The Empire Strikes Back, where I said that really the only part of that soundtrack you really had to listen to was the Imperial March and the last four tracks. And since the Imperial March is in the end credit suite, technically you could skip that track and just listen to the last four tracks. I think for this score, despite how much more I enjoyed it than The Phantom Menace, I really do genuinely enjoy this score. If you want to cut this down to the minimum you have to listen to to get all of the important parts of this score, it's really just Love Pledge in the Arena. It's one track. If you really want more of that love theme, you can listen to that suite as well, but... Like I said, you can avoid duplication. It's really just one track. You listen to that one track, you've got all the best parts. It's definitely the best track on the album. I think it's the best track in the prequels. It could be. I mean, we'll have to listen to Revenge of the Sith and see if there's anything in there worth a damn. But I mean, it's really too bad that Arena track is like 90% cut out of the movie. Because it's good too. Yes. Well, it comes back in Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> you didn't remember that? Oh, God. Yes. I saw Revenge of the Sith once in 2005. Once. I saw Phantom Menace many times. I saw Attack of the Clones many times. I saw Revenge of the Sith once in J 2005. Just to be done. I am sort of morbidly fascinated to see exactly what gets tracked where to put together Revenge of the Sith. It is such a jigsaw puzzle. These prequel scores are such epistemological quagmires. Well, because you don't know where anything comes from. Because, like I said before, Williams, in putting together his album, chopped and screwed the original recordings as much as Lucas and Ben Burt did chopped and screwed it to put together the movie score. So, like, you hear something and you don't know, well, was this recorded intended for where it shows up on the album, but Lucas and Burt put it in the movie over here? Or was this recorded intended for where it is in the movie, but Williams just stuck it in this track on the album? Or was it recorded for something else entirely? And they both just cut it out and pasted it wherever they wanted. Well, there's the title for the show. <laughs> yes, Star Wars prequel scores. It's hard to tell in some cases. And if you happen to look around online for other versions that people make, they're just taking guesses, too. You know, it's like Build-A-Bear. Build your own score, however you like. Well, that's because, to a certain extent, the movie is also an epistemological mystery. Mm -hmm. There was one version when it first came out, and there was a different version a couple of weeks later, and there was a different version when it was released for IMAX, and there was a different version when it was released for DVD, and there was a different version when it was released for Blu-ray. On that note of confusion, we will move on from our discussion of Attack of the Clones to the last in our series of epistemological quagmires. Join us after this for Revenge of the Sith!
promotional consideration paid for by the following. Be sure to follow all of the contributions to Star Wars Month, but we also have plenty of other great content for you on our two podcast feeds here at Place to Be Nation. The Place to Be Nation pop feed includes The Hard Traveling Fanboys, the longest-running weekly episodic comic podcast in all of Place to Be Nation, featuring the talents of Greg Phillips and Nick Duke. DC4U, an in-depth look at the world of DC Comics with Russell Sellers and Todd Weber. Marvel Age, where Nick Duke, Tim Capel, Russell Sellers, and Todd Weber are going through the history of Marvel Comics. Laugh-In Theater, a live-watch comedy movie podcast hosted by Andy Atherton. The Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular brings you deep thoughts on pop culture and the wider culture from the minds of Glenn Butler and my family and friends. The Great Debate, where Andy Atherton leads a panel of guests through a series of arguments on topics far and wide. This Week in the NFL, where Cowboy and D'Amato take you through recaps and previews of each week of the NFL season. The NBA team, Adam Murray and Andrew Reich, cover the world of hoops from coast to coast. The Year in Pop, a deep dive into pop culture year by year, hosted by Andy Atherton, Scott Criscolo, Dr. G, and our friend Mr. D'Amato. Sunday Groove, a podcast for music lovers, hosted by David Sunday. Looking Forward, Looking Back, Pop Culture and Sports Editions, hosted by Andy Atherton and The Cowboy, respectively, plus special topical podcasts and pod blasts as events warrant. The Place to Be Nation wrestling feed includes The Place to Be Podcast, the mothership of The Place to Be, where JT Rosero and Scott Criscolo take you chronologically through the history of WWE. PTBN's main event, where Scott Criscolo, Nate Milton, and Steve Willie cover current events in the world of wrestling. Body Press Your Luck, a brand new wrestling game show hosted by JT Rosero and Jordan Duncan, plus monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, and much, much more. Don't forget to check out PlaceToBeNation.com every day. We have new voices and fresh takes bringing you articles on topics in the worlds of sports, wrestling, and pop culture, as well as our mainstays, such as Scott Criscolo and Logan Crossland's college football campus hot takes, and the Wednesday Walk Around the Web, my weekly link roundup covering things I've seen online that make me laugh, make me feel something, sometimes make me think, and I hope they do the same for you, coming to you every Wednesday. And if you're shopping from Amazon, be sure to click on the Amazon banner on the right side of the Place to Be Nation homepage, or use placetobenation.com slash Amazon. And now, back to the show. And now... We are finishing the prequel trilogy with The Revenge of the Sith. Hey, Scott, is this the franchise at its darkest? This is how a franchise dies. In terms of new themes and new material for this film, there's really only one highlight to talk about, and that is the Battle of the Heroes concert suite and its use in the climax of the film.
I think that the construction of this theme and the way that it's used and the role that it plays invites comparison to a couple other pieces from the earlier films, but we'll get into that in a minute. In isolation, in itself, what do you make of this piece? This piece is really emblematic of the music for this entire trilogy. Because in isolation, on its own, in the concert suite, I kind of like it. It's okay. It's a good lesson. However, there are a litany of problems with it as a piece of a musical score in a movie. For one thing, it's barely in the movie. Like, there's little bits of it here and there during that final battle, but there's like little bits of it that are strung between stuff tracked from Empire. Clash of the Lightsabers is in that track just over twice. I mean, at one one point, about halfway through the track, Clash of the Lightsabers has been in the track more than the Battle of the Heroes theme. So that's a problem with the way the score is constructed. The other problem is, what does this theme represent? The eternal quandary. I know what Luke's theme represents. Luke's theme represents Luke. Leia's theme represents Leia. Ben's theme... And the original movie sort of represents Luke's destiny, and in later movies it just represents the Force in general. What does this Battle of the Heroes theme represent other than this scene is going to be epoch, and so we need the music in it to be epoch? Well, I think that is the main checkbox. (laughs) Basically, same question about the Duel of the Fates. Right. Duel of the Fates, I think, is the piece that it invites the closest comparison to, because they're both pretty independent themes written just for the climactic duels in their respective films. We talked quite a bit in the Attack of the Clones segment about what that Duel of the Fates theme should represent, what it does represent. I think if it was supposed to represent larger themes of this entire prequel trilogy, then there would not be the Battle of the Heroes theme. It would be a new variation on Duel of the Fates to kind of bring that full circle. Yes, but to do that, you would have had to have evolutions of Duel of the Fates in Attack of the Clones beyond the one scene where it shows up for three seconds. And you would have to have it in this movie in scenes other than that final battle. You can't have a big explosion of something when you haven't built up to it. Like, if you're going to compare it to the fight in Return of the Jedi, that choir shows up fairly early in the movie doing the Emperor's theme. That choir is under the scene where they first get to Endor. When Luke is worried that Vader can sense him, and Vader knows that Luke is there, and it's sort of building toward their eventual confrontation, that choir is there under that whole scene where Luke and Vader are taunting each other back and forth, and Luke doesn't want to fight him, and Vader's trying to provoke him. That choir is there that whole time, so that when it finally explodes during their final fight, it's been built up to. It, it means something. It's a satisfying climax. You can't have a satisfying climax with no build-up. You can't just have, like, generic athematic drek, and then generic athematic drek, and then generic athematic drek, and then BOOM! Battle of the Heroes! That's not a satisfying climax. Well, at least in terms of setting up the choral involvement, there is much more consistent choral involvement throughout these prequels. That much actually is there. Melodically, it's another set piece. 
that I think kind of gets elevated because, aside from one or two very, very minor things, it is the one melodic contribution to the series that this movie provides. And so what would otherwise just be a climactic set-piece cue for the climactic set-piece action scene in this film kind of gets elevated in, in status because while there is a lot of music that was written for this movie, that is in the movie, so little of it has actual content. I made the point during the Phantom Menace section that there's a difference between just sort of needle-dropping a theme into the middle of a track and actually using the theme as the backbone around which your track is constructed. This movie does a lot of needle-dropping themes. The Force theme is just dropped into several scenes. Like, there's one particular track in the scene where Mace Windu and other Jedi are trying to arrest Palpatine. They play the Force theme in that track, and it has, like, no interaction whatsoever with any other music. Like, there's other music before the Force theme, and it continues while they're playing the Force theme, and it just continues on after the Force theme. The Force theme has no interaction whatsoever with other music in that track. Like, it may as well have been copy and pasted from another source on top of an existing musical cue for all of the effect that the Force theme has on the music in that scene. Music copied and pasted and just tracked in without any consideration in the prequels? This movie does have a lot of themes in it compared to, like, Phantom Menace, but they're all just needle-dropped. They're all just placed in there, and they have no build-up, and they have no payoff. The tracks aren't built around them, they just show up out of nowhere. I guess in response to on-screen prompts, but I'm not watching the movie, I'm listening to the score. I don't need to watch the movie for the original trilogy, because those scores tell the story. This score does nothing. I think that goes to an overall point that we've been making about the construction and the use of themes in all of these prequel movies. That they are kind of needle-dropped a lot more. And when they get needle-dropped in for various timing prompts in the film, that kind of leads to less variation of each of the individual themes, which we've talked about for all of these. Because they're not an organic part of the track, so... Oftentimes, yes. So there's no, like, variations to fit in with different moods or different scenes because they don't fit in. They're just dropped in there. Right. The Force theme, like you mentioned, is in this movie a lot. It's probably one of the most used themes in this movie. I think you might be right about that. Well, we, we could discuss that later because... It's, I think it's either the Force theme or possibly the love theme, but we have to talk about how to use the love theme. Yes. I remember when this score and this movie first came out in 2005, I was wondering if some of the uses of the Force theme in this film were an effort by Williams to kind of make it Obi-Wan's theme again. For the first time in a long time. But taking in the totality of the score and its use in more general places, like the Mace Windu and Palpatine confrontation that you mentioned, or Palpatine talking to Anakin at the opera, and a couple others, it doesn't really become an individual character theme again. And yet, 
it is in the score a bunch for Obi-Wan as well. His his whole storyline where he's hunting General Grievous. It's in the opening battle in a very strident variation, the likes of which hasn't been heard in a while at that point. Yeah, that version right at the beginning, I mean, it's good, it sounds cool, but again, they play through the theme once and then immediately move on to some other generic thing that has nothing to do with anything. It's like the scene with Anakin destroying the starship in Phantom Menace. They play through the theme once and it sounds cool for what it is, but it has no relation to what came before and no relation to what came after. But it is still very welcome when it does pop up, I think. I don't think I agree, really. It seems kind of pointless. Because there's no build-up and no payoff, because they play, like, half of the theme, or occasionally one run-through of the whole theme, and then immediately move on to something else that has no connection to what came before or after. It's like, what's even the point? Okay, that six or ten seconds sounded cool. But this is a two-hour movie. This is two hours of score. I can't get too excited about six or eight seconds that sound cool. Well, at some point, we take our highlights where we can find them. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm a, I know I must be picky, but right before this, I listened to the three original trilogy scores. So I have some pretty high standards these things are trying to live up to. Hey, I recognize that tune for six or eight seconds. It's not satisfying me. Speaking of themes that are ultimately unsatisfying in this film, let's talk about the use of the love theme a little bit. How much of a theme has to be there before you can actually call it using the theme? Because the love theme is in this movie a lot. And with one or two exceptions, they never play more than about three notes of it at a time. The love theme, more than any other theme used in this film, I think gets twisted a lot. It gets disturbed. It gets cut off after a few notes, just enough to be identifiable, if you're really listening for it sometimes. And I think that does serve a storytelling purpose. But in terms of an overall score, it does wind up being very unsatisfying. I think it would fill a storytelling purpose. And it's not just the love theme. There's a lot of themes when they show up, they feel sort of twisted and broken. That would tell a storytelling purpose. A, if there were better storytelling going on, but... That would fit a storytelling purpose if that was a development from what came before. If Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones were just full of themes 
and full of tracks built around themes and full of tracks that featured themes. And then you get to Revenge of the Sith and everything feels broken and twisted and degraded. That would fit a storytelling purpose. But when Phantom Menace is a barren desert, and Attack of the Clones has an oasis here and there, and then you get to Revenge of the Sith, and everything is broken and degraded, and also it's sort of a barren desert. I don't know, I kind of feel like... It's like, if you want to say that's what Williams was trying to do, is tell the story of everything going to shit by having all of the themes go to shit. Like, that's a fine idea, but it only works if the themes were previously not gone to shit. One of the points that I made about the love theme in the previous segment is that, as it's constructed, it's already telling a story of a tragic love. It already has that melodrama and that pathos in it. And so, twisting it around to inject even more of that winds up disintegrating it. There's a lot of places in this score, because I was listening closely, because our whole thing is we analyze things, so I'm listening closely to this thing so that, you know, if there's something there, I'm going to notice it and not just gloss over it because I'm busy reading Twitter. There were a lot of places in this score where I wasn't sure if Williams was invoking a theme or if I was just imagining things. Because he plays like two notes or three notes. And they aren't even from the theme. They're from a piece of transitional material in the suite. And it's like, was that on purpose or is that just a coincidence? And I realized I said in a, the previous section that, you know, with these longer grand epic themes, you don't really get that. You don't sit there going, hmm, was that the Force theme? I don't know if that was Luke's theme, but God, every other track, I'm like... Is that supposed to be the Across the Stars love theme? Was that an on-purpose two notes that are also next to each other that way in the Across the Stars love theme? So Williams made a liar out of me. <laughs> there are times when I think that method works, such as the echoes of the love theme that are in the Order 66 montage. I think that is one of the highlights of this score, as far as it goes. track could have been a great track in a better score. Okay, fair. There were a couple, I think, I think that was the main one. There might have been like one other where it's like, if this track came in the middle of The Empire Strikes Back, I would say, wow, this is a standout track. This is another asteroid field. This is another Rancor fight. But coming in the middle of a score where I am just like starving for something that's built around a theme, even a good track that is just another track with no themes in it. Like, I'm not saying that's a bad track. I think in isolation it's really good. But after doing the three original trilogy movies, I have certain expectations of a Star Wars score. 
And these three prequel scores failed to meet those expectations so badly that even a track that I would otherwise enjoy, I am still disappointed by just because it continues to not meet those expectations. I think by the time this final installment of the prequel trilogy came around, everyone pretty much knew what to expect. <laughs> and so this entire score, I think, fits very neatly into the context that had been created by the previous two. Comparisons to the original trilogy, obviously, are going to be rough. Well, the context of expectations that had been set by the previous two are... I expect two hours of Drek with the occasional Star Wars theme needle dropped for eight or ten seconds. And that's what we got. But, I mean, you can't say, okay, well, that met my expectations. Good job, Williams. No. Just because the Phantom Menace score was crap, and the Attack of the Clones score was like 80% crap, and so I expected this score to be mostly crap, doesn't mean it gets points for meeting those expectations. The score is so dreary, which again might fit in a storytelling sense, but... But in isolation, it becomes a bit much. It becomes a bit much, and then you get to the end, and all of a sudden they play Luke's theme, and it just sounds so staggeringly out of place. Like, even when they reuse the arena track from Attack of the Clones... Which is ironic, because they cut that out of the Attack of the Clones movie, but they cut it into this movie, like, four times. Hmm. But that track just has so much more life in it than anything written for this film that it stands out like a sore thumb every time it shows up. It's just like, dreary, 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 dreary. Here's a fun and exciting march. Not to mention our old friend, the Escape from Naboo. How many times is that in the movie? I didn't even count. I think it's in the opening scene twice. <laughs> I love using things twice in this movie. Because I think Escape from Naboo is tracked into different parts of that opening scene twice. Anakin destroying the starship from Phantom Menace is tracked into the crash landing twice. Clash of the Lightsabers is in the Battle of the Heroes scene twice. And a touch. The Padme death scene is scored with Qui-Gon's funeral twice. Just one after the other. Well, you know what they say, always two there are. And a bit. I mean, I've gone on record saying before, take the good part and loop it. I'm fine with that, because you get more good part. But Jesus, this movie takes it pretty far. The use of Qui-Gon's funeral over Padme's funeral at the end of the film, I think, is just fabulous. The aching string version of that theme, with the Imperial March kind of sneaking under it and coming up as they cut back to Vader, I think that cue is just fantastic. It is one of the absolute highlights of this score for me.
I was just so done by then. What? This score beat me down. Plus, it was like the 14th or 15th piece that was essentially tracked from another movie. It was a variation of a theme. That's a theme now? Tell me all of the scenes that theme appeared in. Qui-Gon's funeral, Padme's death, Padme's funeral? I don't know exactly when I hit my limit. It was probably somewhere in that final duel. I know it was before the uh, Anakin gets burned by lava bit. Because that was another track that was trying so hard to be grand and epoch. Yeah, there's something about the depth of sound in the strings in this score that's really, really trying to ring all the drama that it can from every note. I just feel like it's trying too hard. And like it's trying too hard in the most shallow ways. And of course it doesn't help that the movie that it's trying to prop up is a steaming pile of shit. Well, speaking of shallow, I guess. You know, there are people that say Attack of the Clones is the worst of the prequel movies, but there's nothing, not even the love story in Attack of the Clones is as dumb as the storytelling in Revenge of the Sith. I can hardly even say anymore. I just lump them all together in my head, and that's it. The one, like, practically the only bright spot in this entire score, in my opinion, is the end credits track. The end of the end credits track, where they basically play the throne room concert suite. I don't know what it is. It's like finally arriving at the oasis after you've walked through the desert for many weeks. It's like a bomb on my soul. put in my notes that like if we're gonna do like a general wrap-up of the three prequel scores I think there's basically two good tracks in the prequels love pledge in the arena and the end of the end credits of revenge of the Sith and I think it's another sign that Williams basically threw his hands up and said whatever George I'm gonna go write a score because there's no earthly reason why the revenge of the Sith end credits should end with the throne room concert suite also, he recorded new end credits for this movie. We talked about how they reused the Phantom Menace recording in Attack of the Clones, but he recorded a new end credits piece for this movie and then put Leia's theme on it, and then pasted in the Battle of the Heroes suite, and then ended it with the Throne Room concert suite, and then a return to the main theme, which is the first time since Jedi they did that. Right, well, I think the brightness that is inherent to the uses of Luke's theme and Leia's theme and then the throne room concert suite at the end of this movie 
are ways of taking a story that was about all of our heroes failing and putting a postscript on it to remind everyone it's going to be okay later. As well as in the last Star Wars movie at the time, echoing back almost 30 years to the first one to have kind of a victory lap for Williams. See, that's more along the lines of what I was thinking. I took it as basically a reminder that, hey, remember back when there were good Star Wars movies? I could write really good Star Wars scores. Don't judge me on this shit. So far as I can tell, John Williams is a man totally devoid of such cynicism, but we all have our headcanons. The really interesting thing is that, and I mean, we'll get there next episode, but all of the ways that these three prequel scores all have the same issues and the same problems, a lot of those problems get fixed, at least to an extent, in the sequel scores. So, like, is this just Williams sucked in the early 2000s? Or working with George Lucas at this point in time was just that difficult? That's a parallel I hadn't considered before. Is Williams's performance working with Lucas for these movies as stilted as Sam Jackson's performance working with George Lucas in these movies? Well, I mean, we know the acting sucks universally. He barely got a decent performance out of Ewan McGregor and didn't get a decent performance out of Academy Award winner Natalie Portman. I heard someone say once that George Lucas's greatest achievement as a director is he made Samuel L. Jackson boring. <laughs> but I mean, aside from that, like, I honestly wrote this down in my notes because I'm kind of curious, just like, what the hell happened? Is this just Williams was going through a period of his career where his style was singularly unsuited to Star Wars? Was working with George Lucas just so torturously difficult that even John Williams couldn't get anything decent out of the process? Is this just an all-around cursed production and nothing attached to it could ever be good? I think it probably is the mummy's curse, yes. <laughs> but we will indeed track how this develops for the sequel movies and a whole host of other things when we come back next week. That will do it for our discussion of the Star Wars prequels. Hey Scott, where can people find you on the internet? Why would people want to find me on the internet? People do all sorts of things in life. I mean, I guess I'm on the Twitter machine now, at SpectacularSco, because there's a character limit on Twitter usernames. I mean, if you're really looking for retweets of liberal political content and 20-year-old computer technology. And who among us isn't? And the occasional random Star Wars or Star Trek thought. And if you would like to find much of the same from me as well, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Bun. If you would like to reach us here at the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, you can email spectacularadvice at gmail.com. We will be back next week with even more Star Wars scores. We will see you then.
call it now. We're not going to get anything better than Williams taking a swig of whiskey and yelling YOLO. 